Amen. This morning, however, we're going to continue uh, our study through the book of Ruth. We are in the middle of a, uh, will be an 11-week study through the book of Ruth, and this is the 10th week. So we are nearing the end now. As a matter of fact, we're in the final chapter of the book of Ruth, and this final chapter brings all of the drama of the book to a remarkable conclusion. It, it consists of two scenes. The first scene transpires at the city gates, and the setting there is is somewhat like that of a courthouse, of a county courthouse, if you will. And then the second scene takes place presumably in the home of Boaz and Ruth some nine months or more later. Amen. Next week, we'll cover that scene. This morning, we're going to cover uh, the scene that takes place in the city gates. We'll start with the first verse of the fourth chapter. I'm going to go through verse 12 this morning, but I'm not going to read it all uh, at the beginning. We'll just read it as we get to it in the telling of the story. Amen? The theme of today's message, the theme of this entire passage, if you've been following the book of Ruth as it's unfolded, you've now reached the place where finally that kinsman redeemer is going to lay hold or lay claim to that which is his. The theme of the whole section that we're going to look at this morning is redemption. And if, if you were to read this passage, verses 1 through 12, in the Hebrew, the word, the Hebrew word for redemption or redeem or redeeming or one of its synonyms is found 15 times in these 12 verses. It's a, it's a repetitive theme that's woven throughout these verses. Those words in the English translation are, are translated as redeem, which is found eight times in today's text, redeeming, which occurs once, buy, which occurs three times, biased, which happens once, bought once and purchased once. Those words signify for us this transaction that's taking place. And we've said from the very start that this, this story of Ruth is not just a story of two people who meet and fall in love and get married. It is t it's typical of Jesus Christ and his bride. Boaz represents uh, Christ. He represents Jesus, and, and, and Ruth represents the church. And so we're coming to the culmination. The very important part of this story is that he redeems her. Amen? He doesn't just love her. He doesn't just have compassion on her. He doesn't just show her mercy and grace, but he lifts her out of the place where she is. He, he brings her out of that horrible circumstance that has befallen her. He redeems her. Aren't you thankful today that you have a Redeemer? Amen. Verse 1, I'm going to read the first and second verse together. It says, Then went Boaz up to the gate and sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spoke, spake came by, unto whom he said, Ho, oh, such a one, turn aside and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. And he took Ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down also. So we, we rushed right into the action. Amen. But let me kind of set the stage. We, we just finished chapter 3. If you remember, we left Boaz on the threshing floor. Amen. In the middle of the night or in the early wee hours of this morning. And, and Ruth has gone home and she has reported to Naomi all that has transpired. And so this is the next morning that just a few hours later, Boaz is returning to Bethlehem. But he stops at the city gates. Amen. City gates in Palestine were 
a little different than just a, a gateway into the city. It was a complex structure. It had lookout towers on the outside for those who would stand guard to watch for an enemy, a, a series of rooms on either side of the gateway uh, where, where the, the business of the town was conducted. There were benches built into that gate around the, the middle of it and out the corners of it where those those benches and that little courtyard that it created became the place of official business for the community. That's where uh, the citizens of the town would gather. That's where they, they administrated official business. That's where judicial proce proceedings took place. That's where all the business of the community was conducted. And we left Ruth, if you'll remember, unaware of how Boaz was going to fix the problem. Boaz is willing to redeem her, but there is another who stands before him in line. There is another who is a nearer kinsman to her than he is. And we didn't know in the last lesson, we didn't know in, in chapter 3 how that was going to be fixed. But now we learn that when Boaz returns to Bethlehem, he sits down in the gate. What that means is he's calling the quorum of elders to, to business. Amen. It's almost as if he's calling a court of law into session. And so whenever an individual would come from the field and, or come from their home or come from wherever they came from and they would sit in the gate, there was a significance to it. The, the citizens would recognize immediately somebody needs to conduct business. There's something going on. And some of the elders of the community would, would begin to gather there and begin to make themselves available for the legal business that is about to be transacted. Amen. And so Boaz sits in the gate, and the Bible says that just so happens, don't you love the divine providence that shows up all through the story of Ruth? It just so happens she found a field that belonged to Boaz. It just so happened that he was her kinsman, her near kinsman. It just so happened over and over and over again. Sometimes what the world calls happenstance is the divine providence of the hand of God. And, and Boaz has made a promise to Ruth by the name of God. He's promised that he's going to resolve this matter this day. Amen. And so he goes and sits in the gate, and he has no sooner than sat in the gate until the man that he needs to talk to, the other kinsman, the near kinsman, comes walking by. And he says, oh, hang on, wait a minute, stop. I need you to sit right here. Amen. And then Boaz, the scripture tells us, he goes and he gathers a quorum of witnesses. He gets ten elders and says, I need you to come and sit with us. We're about to conduct Business by this time, everybody understands that there's there's some form of official business that needs to be conducted, and so uh, they've gathered there. And perhaps by now, a crowd's starting to gather to kind of look in and see what in the world is Boaz doing. What's he got on his mind? And so they're all sitting there on those benches inside the gate. And in verse three, Boaz said unto the kinsman, Naomi, that has come again out of the country of Moab selleth a parcel of land which was our brother Elimelech's. And so 
Boaz wastes no time. He gets right to the very heart of the matter. Amen. Naomi has a parcel of land. It belonged to our brother, speaking to the other kinsmen, saying, we're related. This is our brother's land. This was his. He is our, our kinsman. And, and that portion, it, it needs to be redeemed. Amen. This is rooted in the, the law and the culture of Israel. Uh, according to Mosaic law, land was never to leave the ownership of the family whose it was by inheritance. They received that land as their portion of the inheritance of the promised land, and it was to remain in the family lineage. And the whole purpose of the kinsman redeemer is so that it, it can be so. If I got in dire straits and I sold my land to someone else, my near kinsman has the right to come in and redeem it and, and put it back in the family line. And so this is where Boaz starts. He starts starts with the notion that Naomi has come again from Moab and, and she has a parcel of land that, that belonged to Elimelech. And while the, the translation that we read says that, they, that Naomi is selling the field, that's not entirely accurate. She's, she is, it's, it's a little more complex than that. According to Hebrew law, Naomi couldn't sell the field because Naomi couldn't own the field. The land belonged to her deceased husband, and we'd be passed from her deceased husband to the next in kin. What is happening here is that Naomi is surrendering her claim or surrendering any right to redeem the land. She's passing it down to the near kinsmen. She's passing it to the next in line. So we, we said before that it was a terrible thing for Elimelech to, to move to Moab. We, we talked about how he would have had to been in dire straits. It was a, a famine was in the land and, and he was hard up for money and he couldn't find the resources to provide for his family. And rather than, he had two options. He could sell himself into slavery, amen, or he could go to Moab and he chose to go to Moab. Amen. But now we understand that he owned land. And so we have to understand that before he got in such a condition that the only resort he had was to go to Moab, he probably sold the land. And he probably reaped the benefit of such a sale, but it didn't last long enough. It didn't carry them through the famine. And so ultimately, he would find himself back in that impoverished state, and he would carry his family off to Moab. And while he's in Moab, amen, 10 years transpired. In the course of that 10 years, Elimelech dies. His two sons die. All of his heirs are gone. And back in Bethlehem, it appears the land has, has been maybe sold again or fallen into the hands of someone outside of the family so that it's a kinsman's right now to reclaim it. Amen. If it, he'd sold it to a kinsman, then it would be in the family. This law wouldn't come into play. It has to have either been sold outside of the family or either before uh, Elimelech left or after Elimelech left. Maybe the person who bought it from him sold it out of the family, but somewhere it's been sold out of the family. And so the business that Boaz is conducting on behalf of Naomi is the fact that now that she's back, now that she has returned, the law says that 
field has to be returned to Elimelech's bloodline. Amen. There is a right in the in the in the 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 possession, or there's a possession of a right on the part of the nearest kinsman to be able to go out and negotiate a purchase price for that land and obtain it and bring it back into the lineage. Bring it back into the family. Amen. And so Boaz lays all that out before the kinsman. And then he says, I, I thought to advertise thee. And it came to my mind, I might should go and talk to you about this because uh, you're, you're the nearer kinsman. Amen. And he said, I thought to advertise thee, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elder of my people. And if thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will. I'm sorry, Boaz didn't say. The man said, I will redeem it. And so having gotten his attention, Boaz challenges him. He's got the, the witnesses. He's got everybody gathered there. This is official business. And Boaz challenges him to go ahead and acquire the rights. Go ahead and, and, and step up and say he's going to function as the near kinsman, that he will go and purchase the land, that he will step up and fulfill that duty to bring that land back into uh, the lineage of Elimelech. The, the request is simple. If you're going to do it, do it. Go ahead and let it be known right here before all the elders of my people that are gathered here to watch and these witnesses that are assembled in this place, if you're going to act, go ahead and act. But if you don't want to act, that's okay. I am willing and I am able and I am the next in line. And if you're willing to abdicate your responsibility, I'll step in. So you need to make a choice right now. And the kinsman responds by saying, I'll buy it. I'll redeem it. I'll bring the land back into the family. Now, I don't know if by this time maybe Ruth and Naomi have made their way down to the city gate, heard what's going on, and I don't know if they're looking on or not, but I can just imagine that if Ruth is looking on at this point, her heart sinks. We talked about this last week. Na uh, Boaz was kind of nonchalant. He was kind of candid about the fact that if the other kinsman wanted to claim his right, well, she would still be taken care of. It would all be okay, and that, that he would do whatever the other kinsman decided to do in this matter. But in Ruth's mind, it must have been an unacceptable alternative. Amen? She wants to, she's in love with Boaz. She wants to marry Boaz. And here's this other man. This other man, we don't even know his name. Amen? We don't know anything about him. Uh, we don't know if he's if he's wealthy or poor. We don't know if he's uh, handsome or ugly. We, we just don't know anything about him. We just know he's not Boaz. That's all we're supposed to know about him. He's not Boaz. Amen? And he says, I'll purchase it. I'll do it. I'll step up and step into that role of the kinsman. You've got to imagine that Ruth at this point is starting to fidget a little bit. She's starting to get a little worried. Amen. But Boaz knows what he's doing. Amen. He's, he's tilting things in his own favor. Uh, You've got to wonder at this point why he hasn't even mentioned Ruth. I mean, that's what he's here for. Boaz isn't here for land. He's here for a bride. But why has he brought up the land? Why is he talking about this field that needs to be redeemed when there's so much more at stake 
than a field. It's because he knows something we don't know. And now he begins to act on what he knows. This is where he introduces Ruth into the transaction. Verse 5, then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand of Naomi, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance. So Boaz reminded the kinsman that this transaction is, is more complex than just acquiring the rights to purchase a field and bring it back into the family. Elimelech had a son who has left behind a widow that has no child, and, and Elimelech's name will die. It's going to be cut off with Ruth if somebody doesn't marry her and fulfill that Leviterate law, that law that says that I can take my brother's wife, and I, I, when he marries her, he, he produces a child and that first child goes to the credit of the brother not to him so that that lineage and that heritage is continued on and that leviterate law is what comes into play in the story of Ruth and so what what is happening here is Boaz is making the kinsmen aware of the fact that that there's more at play than just a field there's a woman and there's an obligation and there are children that have to be born amen Notice how Boaz identifies Ruth. He calls her the Moabitess, Ruth the Moabitess. We've talked about this a couple of times, too, throughout this book. And we, we've talked about how that uh, he, he is linking Ruth to Moab in an effort perhaps to, or how the narrator links Ruth to Moab in an effort perhaps to, to point out that she's a foreigner. She's an outsider. She doesn't belong here. And maybe in this context, Boaz is r linking Ruth to Moab in order to make the uh, kinsman aware that she is of Moabite descent, amen, because there's a lot of animosity there. There's a lot of, there's a lot of trouble in between Moab and Israel, and he, he probably links Ruth to Moab in an effort to cast doubt in the mind of that kinsman uh, of the wisdom of acquiring the rights to Elimelech's land if he's got to take upon himself a Moabite bride, amen. Now, for Boaz, this isn't a problem. He's had direct contact with her. We've already seen in the last chapter, he's called her very honorable, said she has a good reputation among the people. He, 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 is, he doesn't have, it's not a stumbling block for him to marry a Moabite, but he is counting perhaps on some kind of anti-Moabite sentiment on the part of the kinsman redeemer, amen, that would render him less inclined to accept Naomi's offer. Secondly, he, he introduced her as the wife of the dead, and that, that invokes the Leviterate law. That's saying that if the kinsman require, acquires the rights to Elimelech's land, he also assumes the responsibility for ensuring that Elimelech's line continues. Amen. If he acquires the rights to the land, he has to also acquire Ruth and with the specific purpose of marrying her and fathering a child through her on behalf of Elimelech. It would become his job to establish the name of that deceased man. Amen. To make sure that name continues on. He would be required to, to bear the child and let that child carry his father's name. In the ancient world, one of the most Terrible things, one of the worst, most fearful curses that one could pronounce upon another was may your seed perish and may your name die out. 
Amen. This is what the kinsman redeemer's job is. It's to stop the name from dying out. It's to stop the lineage from mending. It's to stop the seed from perishing. And so in verse 6, the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. So whatever enthusiasm the kinsman may have had for acquiring the rights to Elimelech's land was completely dampened by the introduction of Ruth into the transaction. It made all the difference in the world. Amen. It caused him to stop and say, you know what? I can't do it. I can't redeem the land. That's an interesting proclamation. It, it, perhaps it hints at something that Boaz knew all along, that whenever it became apparent to the man that there was a leviterate bow involved, and when it became apparent to the man that Ruth was a part of the package, that the man wouldn't be able or would not be willing to step up and fulfill that obligation. He's afraid, the Scripture says, that it will mar his own inheritance if he redeems the land and takes on the responsibility of Ruth and Naomi. Perhaps that means that he stopped for a moment, pulled out the old mental calculator, and he added up the cost. He counted the cost of acquiring the field. He had to buy the field, and, and because you're at a disadvantage, uh, Brother Andy's not in the same tribe, and he owns the field. And I have the right to redeem the field, and he has to sell it to me. He's under compulsion of law to sell it to me. But guess what? He sets the price. I'm going to pay whatever he thinks the land's worth. I, I'm not in a good negotiating position. I'm bound by it, and he's bound to sell it. But he don't have to sell it for whatever I say it's worth. And so he sits down maybe, and he calculates the cost of redeeming the property and then the cost of, of taking Naomi into his household, the widow of Elimelech, and providing for her for the rest of her days, and then the cost of marrying Ruth. Weddings are expensive, aren't they, Brother Tim? <laughs> Amen. That, that cost of bringing her into the home, and, and, and perhaps it was just the money that made the difference. Perhaps he looks at this and says, you know what? This isn't such a fiscally sound idea. Uh, it, it may just been that he said, you know, this is going to be more of a drain on my assets than that little field is worth. Amen. I, I don't want to add that to my possessions because it's going to cost me. It's going to mar my inheritance. What I've received, what I've built up, what I have, it's going to take away from me. It's going to cost me more than I'm going to get out of it. Another possibility is that he may have worried that his own inheritance, if he married Ruth and he bore a child by Ruth that would carry the name of Elimelech and by chance never had another child, that his inheritance, his line, would end because his inheritance would go to the line of Elimelech. If that were the case, his own name would cease to be. The same thing that he's saving Elimelech from could potentially befall him if if he fulfills the Leviterate vow and then isn't able to have another child with Ruth then then he may have been worried that that all of my possession and all that I have in my inheritance will end with my line then maybe maybe that's what he means by it will mar my inheritance or or perhaps he's simply worried about the implications of taking a Moabite woman as a bride. 
amen, and having his estate potentially fall into the hands of a half-breed, one that is partially Jewish but has the blood of Moab flowing through its veins. You can imagine how that would cast aspersions on the situation. And so uh, he, he maybe this is what he means, but it would mar my inheritance. But in some way or the other, amen, and in a way that we don't see clearly through the text to know what's going on behind it in Boaz's mind, but we have to figure from way back in chapter 3 when Boaz said, don't worry about it, I'll take care of it. There is a nearer kinsman, but it, and if he wants to exercise his right, that'll be okay. Okay, and we all thought, man, that was that is so much like a man, amen. So so uncaring and so uh, insensitive. But we have to understand now that Boaz probably knew what we didn't understand. He probably knew what we didn't know. He knew that this, for whatever reason, this man was going to have this reservation about fulfilling this vow, amen. Now Boaz doesn't share those concerns. It doesn't bother him at all. He's ready, and he's willing, and, and he is determined to do it. And so the kinsman says in unequivocal and emphatic terms, redeem my right for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Verses 7 and 8 follow, and verse there, it's interesting, verse 7 contains a parenthetical comment concerning the ancient legal custom and if you just read verse 7 and haven't read verse 8 yet, it won't make sense because it's explaining what happens in verse 8. Perhaps in, in a more modern grammatical writing of the story, verse 7 would have come after verse 8. But the way the Hebrew is lined out, this little insertion of a parenthetical gives a pause in the story. And so in verse 7, we get an explanation of what's going to take place in verse 8. It says this, Now this was the manner in formal time, former times in Israel concerning redeeming and concerning changing. For to confirm all things, a man plucked off his shoe and gave it to his neighbor, and this was a testimony in Israel. Therefore the kinsman said unto Boaz, Buy it for thee. So he drew off his shoe. Amen. So the, the kinsman, the sandal, that, that the most common form of footwear in the ancient world, made of leather and straps of thongs of leather, there's nothing special about it, but there's something special about the transaction of taking off the shoe and giving it to another. It says, I'm surrendering my right. You ever wonder why God tells Moses to take off your shoes? You're standing on holy ground. There's a, there's a significance in taking off the shoe that says, I surrender my rights. I, I, I surrender my hold. I surrender my claim. Moses is about to be commissioned. He's about to be sent out. He's about to go back and bring those children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. And he's got to answer that call. But before he can answer that call, he's got to surrender his rights. Amen? The narrator notes that the kinsman's action follows this ancient practice that was in place in Israel for years and years, perhaps as far back again, as I just said, all the way back to Moses before there was even even was uh, the institution of the law. That that practice was performed in legal context. It had to do with redemption. It had to do with transfer of property. It had to do with the surrendering of right or obligation. It was a symbolic act. It declared that 
when the kinsman reached down and took off his sandal and he gave it to Boaz. He was saying, I abdicate my responsibility. I release you to go and fulfill my responsibility for me because I cannot do it. Amen. So Boaz keeps the shoe. I guess the poor guy's got to go down to the store and buy him another pair of shoes now. But Boaz keeps the sandal because the sandal is his testament for all of time that that right was transferred. If it's ever called into question, if somebody ever comes and says, what right do you have to buy a Limelech's field? What right do you have to marry the widow of his son? He can pull out the shoe and say, I'm the next in line. It was surrendered to me. That's the evidence. Amen? And so Boaz, then after receiving the shoe and the commandment to go buy it for yourself, in verse 9, it says, Boaz said to the elders and to all the people, Ye are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Malon's of the hand of Naomi. Amen. So Ruth, the scripture says, Moreover, Ruth the Moabitess, Moabitess, the wife of Malon, have I purchased to be my wife, to raise up the name of the dead upon his inheritance, that the name of the dead be not cut off from among his brethren and from the gate of his place. Ye are witnesses this day. So with the transfer of the sandal, he gets the, the testament. But then he adds to that by turning to the gathered crowd of witnesses. Why he's got ten elders of the tribe seated around him. Because they'll serve as his secondary evidence. Amen. They will always be available to testify. I was there. I heard the transaction. If perhaps somebody calls it into question and, and calls the sandal into question, there's a crowd, both the elders that are seated there and the others that have gathered around and have watched these proceedings take place. And so Boaz informs them what's happened, amen, uh, that the kinsman has released his right. And I have now, I've now claimed Ruth, the Moabitess, to be my wife. And I've, I've claimed everything, the rights and responsibilities of redemption of Elimelech's estate. And all that has officially been transferred to me, amen. And I call you to be witnesses of this. I call you to always be available to 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 speak to the veracity of my claim i have a right amen it was given to me it was surrendered to me when the shoe was placed in my hand amen boaz first mentions his right to the estate because that is where he gets his right to ruth but it was never about an estate with boaz it was never about property it was never about a field it was about a woman it was about ruth it was about making her his bride. That was his primary goal. Verse 11 says, And all the people that were in the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman that has come into thine house like Rachel and like Leah, which too did build the house of Israel. And do thou worthily in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Amen. The response to Boaz's appeal by all the people who were in the gate and the elders was a positive response. They, they accepted their role as witnesses in this transaction. They agreed that they would be able to fulfill that part, but then they went a step further. They prayed a prayer, a blessing prayer over Boaz and Ruth. This is what they prayed. Lord, make the woman that's coming to thine house like Rachel 
and like Leah. What an extraordinary prayer. Amen. And I, I know I stopped before I got done with it, but the woman that's coming to that house is, is derived from an ancient custom, uh, the practice of the Hebrews, that after a wedding, uh, the party, the wedding party would proceed to the home of the groom, where the groom would, would essentially, he would bring his wife into his home, maybe what we consider carrying her across the threshold. He would usher her into his home, and that would culminate the wedding celebration. So what they're saying is, this woman that's coming to thy home, this is this bride, that, and then they pray that God will make this Moabite girl, this girl of the wrong lineage, this girl who is an outsider, this girl who comes from the lineage of those who are the enemies of Israel, that God would put her beside the very matriarchs of Israel, that he would make her like Rachel and Leah. Rachel and Leah were the daughters of Laban. They are men who Jacob married. And if you'll remember, Jacob and Rachel and Leah bore 12 sons who became the 12 tribes of Israel. Rachel and Leah are highly regarded as the matriarchs of the whole community. They are, they're the mother of it all. Amen. It's about as high of a compliment as you can get to say that they would pray that, that this person would be blessed, that Ruth would be blessed like Rachel and like Leah. Amen. That just like Rachel and Leah built up the house of Israel, so may Ruth build up the house of Boaz. Amen. But that prayer becomes even more extraordinary whenever you stop and realize, amen, that we're talking about a foreigner. We're talking about an outsider. We're talking about someone who has no claim to the mercy and the grace of God, someone who has no claim to the covenant of Abraham, someone who's been adopted into this thing. Aren't you thankful that the grace of God and the mercy of God knows no prejudice? Uh, aren't you thankful that he doesn't look at you and say, you know what, you're just not good enough. Uh, you just don't belong here. Your background's too bad. Uh, amen. The things you've done in your past are, are too much. Uh, amen. You just don't have any standing here. You just don't have any right here. You just don't have any claim here. They could have looked at Boaz. They could have said, you do realize she's a Moabitess. Uh, you do realize the bloodline you produce is going to have Moabite blood in it. You do realize that you're watering down, if you will, the bloodline of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but that isn't what they said. Uh, they said, may the Lord bless her uh, and raise her up uh, like the mothers of all of our people. Uh, may the Lord set her up uh, for success. Aren't you thankful that God loved you just like you were and just where you were? Amen. That he didn't hold you uh, down to the place where, where you should have maybe been relegated to, but he lifted you up out of a miry clay and he set your feet on a rock to stay. Amen. And he gave you, uh, amen, full rights uh, of adoption uh, into his family. Uh, you didn't have any claim on it. Uh, you didn't have any right to it. Uh, you didn't belong there. But the blood of Jesus Christ brought you into the family of God. I'm thankful for it. Amen. Verse 12 says, And let thy house be like the house of Pharez, whom Tamar bare unto Judah, of the seed which the Lord shall give thee of this young woman. This second reference is also to a biblical story, maybe one that's a little less common, as preachers don't preach on this story near as often. It's a story of, it's a Leviterate vow. It is the most 
celebrated Levitical in the law or in the in the Word of God or the, the Scripture, other than this story of Ruth. And it is a story, though, of tragedy and betrayal. It was a story about a widow whose husband, heir, died without producing a child. There was no heir to carry on his throne or his name. And this widow presented herself to his brother Onan for the Levitical right that he would that he would continue that seed and that he would give her husband an heir. But he deceived her, and I'll let you read for yourself in Scripture how that happened. Uh, it's kind of explicit, but he, he deceived her, and he did not allow her to become pregnant by him. And so he indicated his responsibility. He didn't fulfill that which he was required to do. And maybe this happened several times, and finally Tamar becomes frustrated with the fact that there will be no heir. There will be no child. And if you'll remember the story, and if you haven't, then you'll probably you'll probably want to look it up for yourself. But Tamar goes and she uh, dresses herself and, and pretends to be a prostitute. And she waits by the wayside where Judah is coming through. And, and Judah is her father-in-law. And she tricks him. And she has him come in and spend the night with her. Amen. And as unlikely as it may seem, she conceives twins. Those twin sons are Perez and Zerah. And those two sons became the ancestors of the tribe of Judah. Perez is mentioned here because, first of all, he is the ancestor of, of uh, Boaz's clan. He is the lineage of Boaz comes through Perez. And secondly, because he is the most celebrated child of a Leviterate vow. And so there is a connection there uh, with the Leviterate vow. Even though that is a more sordid story, there is no similarity in the details of the story. These, these folks in this story have kept themselves righteous and holy and pure. And we've, it's, uh, it hasn't been unclean and hasn't been uh, immoral. But what happened there may have been uh, a whole different circumstance. But what they're celebrating is the fact that uh, the, the lineage of Judah was continued through that child that was produced out of that Leviterate, fulfillment of that Leviterate obligation. And so what they're praying over Boaz and Ruth is that, that their house would be just like the house of Pharaoh's, which has grown and multiplied and been blessed. And, and that just as Tamar bare unto Judah that seed of Pharaoh's, that, that Ruth would be able to produce that same kind of seed for Boaz. This is the prayer of the crowd that gathered there. And you, I hope I didn't lose you in those few details about this little story about the, the husband or, or the dead husband and the father-in-law. I know that's sordid and it's untasteful and all of that. But what I want you to remember is these people that are standing here around Ruth and Boaz, they can't see the future. They don't know what's going to unfold. They, they don't realize how prophetic their words are. Ten of them are witnesses that Boaz went and compelled to come and sit. And, and he, he made them come. And perhaps it says something of Boaz's standing in the community that they were willing to come when he asked them to come. The rest of those people are just people who gathered around the gate out of curiosity to see what's going on. But now they're inspired of the Spirit of God and they begin to join in a spontaneous and unanimous pronouncement of blessing on Boaz and Ruth. They came to witness, but they prophesied. 
And had they been around long enough to see the fulfillment of that prayer, they would have observed the establishment of a name and a house that was far greater than the name of Pharaoh's. For out of the lineage uh, of, of Ruth and Boaz would come a man named Obed, uh, who would bear a son named Jesse, uh, who would bear a son named David. Uh, and David, king of Israel, would establish a house uh, that would last for all of time. Uh, for out of the lineage of David uh, would come one called Jesus Christ, uh, the Messiah. Uh, and he would forever sit uh, on the throne of David. Uh, and they didn't understand that day the significance of the prayer that they were praying. Uh, but there was a child going to come from that union. Uh, there was a child going to come out of that devastation stating circumstance that had transpired in Ruth's life and that child was going to be in the lineage of the Savior of the world. And so we come full circle like Boaz was to Ruth. Jesus is our kinsman and our redeemer. Amen. If you stand with me, he's our kinsman after the flesh. You see, the dead of Adam, the dead of sin, is a, is a flesh carnal debt. Amen. And, and the law of the Redeemer says that you can't redeem someone unless you're their kinsman. This meant that it took flesh and blood to fulfill the vow. It took flesh and blood to pay the price for sin. And there was never a man who had the ability to pay that price because every man born after Adam bore the sin and the guilt of Adam until one day the Holy Spirit of God overshadowed a virgin by the name of Mary and told her this day there is conceived in your womb amen a child and thou shalt call his name Emmanuel meaning God with us. Jesus Christ is our kinsman. Amen. God was manifest in the flesh. God came as a man, and as a man, he could pay the price that no one else could ever pay. Amen. As a man, he would live without sin. He would never commit. He would be tempted in all points like as we are, but he would remain without sin. And at the day, at the end of the day, he would be the only one who had the ability to pay the price. He goes to the cross. He's convicted of a crime he didn't commit. He's falsely accused. He's carried to that old rugged cross. They nail him there. They lift him up on that hill. The scripture said, Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. He was cursed so that I could be blessed. He humbled himself. He took my place. He came and he paid my debt. It wasn't a debt that he owed. It was a debt that I owed. And I had no way to pay it. But Jesus Christ loved me so much that he went to the cross of Calvary. And he surrendered everything. He humbled himself unto death. I said this Wednesday night, but there's never been a man ever that had to humble himself in order for death to take him, except Jesus.
Every other person who ever lived was subject to death. But Jesus Christ humbled himself unto death, even the death of the cross. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 7 says, Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory. Of God the Father. I'm so thankful today that I know who Jesus is. I'm thankful today that he's my redeemer. I'm thankful today that he loved me just like Boaz loved Ruth enough that he'll pay whatever the price. Listen, that poor fellow who owns that land is about to get rich. Because he can name whatever price he wants to name. And Boaz is going to pay that price. Why? Not because of the land, but because of the bride. Uh, Amen. My my Bible said, uh, for the joy that was set before him, uh, he endured the pain uh, and the suffering of the cross. Uh, The price can be as great as you want to make it. uh, Amen. Because the price isn't what matters. uh, It's the reward that matters. uh, And you were the reward. And I was the reward. The joy that was set before him. I come to tell somebody in this house, I know it's been a little slow. Kind of working our way through the technical details of the story. It's hard to find a lot of jump and shout and holler in a legal transaction. But I feel the Holy Ghost in this house. I come to tell somebody in this house on a Sunday morning, the Redeemer's here. The Redeemer's in the house. And by virtue of His blood, He has first claim to your life. He's paid for it. He's bought you. He's redeemed you. You may find yourself or you're bound to something else. Amen. You may have given yourself to other things, but you don't belong to them. Amen. You belong to Him. And if you bend your knee at an altar... And you let that blood, that precious blood, watch over you. He will redeem you because he is your redeemer. I want to invite you in this house on Sunday mornings. Brother Ryan gets ready to sing a worship song. That you just find a place of prayer. Perhaps there's some under the sound of my voice that, that, that you are struggling with a sin issue in your life. It's time to let the Redeemer come and wash and cleanse. Perhaps there's some that you're struggling with your self-worth. Amen. It's time to let the Redeemer step in and recognize how valuable you are to Him. Perhaps there's some that uh, you're just struggling with life in general. Amen. It's time to let the Redeemer step in and be your strength uh, and provide for you. Amen. And give you the, the sustenance that you need to make it through the week, uh, to make it through the days and the months that are ahead. Uh, I don't know where you are, but I do know who he is. Uh, Amen. Jesus Christ uh, is in the house this morning, uh, and he is your redeemer. Why don't you call on his name?